for that rollout of DNSSEC, we relied very heavily on data that is curated by DNSOARC. We call it DITL data, which is day in the life of the internet. And essentially, this is full packet capture from all of the, well, as many as root server operators as we can get. They provide full packet captures to DNSOARC for about a two-day period, 48 hours. And so this is very, very useful data for the kind of thing we were, you know, for rolling out DNSSEC. The sort of disadvantage is that it could take a while to transmit all that data and then analyze it. So our analysis lagged (laughs) by a few days, some of the events, but still showed us that, you know, everything was going as expected. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC, discussing all things relating to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Dwayne Wessels from Verisign. Dwayne has a huge role in the domain name system going back decades, and particularly the measurement of very significant deployment changes implemented by Verisign and others as we change the engines mid-flight in the DNS. So, hello everyone. Today, we've got Dwayne Wessels from Verisign with us, who's going to talk about some of the history of the root zone of the DNS and aspects of its measurement. It's sort of a retrospective look at changes to the root zone since 2010. And Dwayne and I have talked about four significant events in the life of the contemporary DNS. But before we dive into that, I think we should do a little bit of background. Dwayne? Would you like to introduce yourself and your role in VeriSign? Thanks, George. So I've been with VeriSign since 2010. I uh, started there to actually start working on root zone projects, which we're going to talk about today. My role there is sort of multifaceted. I get to do some data analysis. I get to do some policy development in, in ICANN. I get to do some protocol work in ITF and uh, sort of generally serve as a subject matter expert for uh, others in the company. So I've had the pleasure of working with you for a number of years. We were both on the board of DNSOARC since its inception, and you've developed a number of community tools. Things like DNSTOP, for instance, have been aspects of work you did with the measurement company. But you actually have quite deep roots into internet history because you were involved in development of the Squib web cache. We actually first met when I was conference chair on the Unix conference back in the 90s and you came out to Australia. Do you remember that trip? Absolutely, I do. That would have been 96-ish, I think, or maybe a little bit later, probably a couple years later. So Squid is an open source project that I had the pleasure of working on for a number of years. And as part of that, I got invited to go to conferences, including the one you mentioned, I believe that was, uh, I took a, like a three-week trip to visit you and other folks in Australia and had a, had a really wonderful time. It was quite funny. Phil Kahn came on that trip and he had a, one of the early GPS handheld units. I remember we were driving in a car in suburban Brisbane and he was staring at his GPS handheld asking us to keep constant speed so he could verify if GPS would track speed. My partner Deborah muttered that the dashboard was doing a pretty good job. <laughs> anyway. So you're with VeriSign, and VeriSign have this key role in aspects of the DNS. Not everyone maybe knows VeriSign that well, so I thought we could maybe just talk a little bit about that. 
VeriSign's a company that has quite a deep relationship with the DNS. It goes back all the way to 93 with Network Solutions. But their roots go before DNS. Um, VeriSign was active in services in X509 certification. So they have quite a strong relationship with public-private key cryptography. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't there for a lot of that history, but I'm aware of it from some of my coworkers. And uh, I think it was a very exciting time. But through the acquisition of Network Solutions, who held the contract for management of generic TLDs under the auspices of the U.S. government, VeriSign has moved into a role where they are one of the key registry operators. They had the registrar role as well, but that was sold out of the company. And it's become a really important functional role in provision of global DNS. There are these two aspects that I think we're likely to talk about today. VeriSign operates two of the name servers behind the root, the magic top-level name servers. They're the letters A and J. Yes. That's correct? Yep. So there are 13 of these labels that are named instances of authoritative name server for the root. Two of them is quite a significant component of the community burden there. Yes, yes, and we take it very seriously. And as we'll see from our conversation today, it provides lots of uh, very useful data. The other thing is that VeriSign has a very specific contract with ICANN to provide the management services behind the contents of the zone, what actually lies inside the zone. That's really quite distinct from being a server of the zone. It's about the mechanistic aspects of providing that service as a trustable information space. You guys actually operate the technology behind writing the zone and applying the signatures, don't you? Yeah, that's our root zone maintainer role. And as you said, we operate the database that, that ends up turning that data into a published root zone file a couple times a day and distributing it out to the other root server operators. Let's begin with looking back and look back to 2010. The signature moment that I think everyone would be interested in here is the application of DNSSEC to the zone. Yeah, so as I said before, I started with VeriSign in 2010. And one of the reasons was because, you know, leading up to that in the year or so prior, there was a lot of talk about DNSSEC and signing the root zone. And I thought it was all very exciting and I wanted to be a part of it. So I joined the company in 2010, but a lot of the work was done by people that came before me. Well, this is a quite deep specification process. We've been active in trying to work out how to do secure DNS since the early 1990s. That had kind of tailed off around 2006, and there had been an incredibly long-winded process to think about deciding to form the committee to plan for deploying DNSSEC. I mean, this was not a rapid decision, was it? It was not a rapid decision. And as I recall, people were sort of waiting to see who's going to go first. Who's, you know, are TLDs going to go first? Are they going to sign first? Is the root zone going to be signed? And so there was a lot of sort of back and forth along those lines. Some people may remember there was this thing called the Trust Anchor Repository, which was a way to sort of bootstrap DNSSEC validation before the root zone itself was signed. But sufficient momentum happened in 2009, 2010, to actually get the root zone itself signed. So were you part of a measurement activity across that deployment? Yes, absolutely. So that was, that was one of the things that I had the privilege of working on, and, and one of the things that my VeriSign colleagues looked for me to do. I had, I had been doing DNS measurements before joining VeriSign, like you said, before within DNSOARC, and even a little bit before that, 
with some uh, some of other collaborators. Yeah, I, I did a lot of uh, DNS measurements. And as some people may remember, rolling out DNSSEC to the root zone was a months-long process. This sort of started in January 2010 and completed in the sort of the mid-year timeframe. There was a, a period which we called the deliberately unvalidatable root zone, the DERS. And the idea here is that there's a key that's used to generate signatures and whatnot, but but the, the public key, the actual key is not published. It's not shared with anybody. So you can't actually validate it. Right. And that meant that we didn't enter a situation where people were potentially uncovering a bug with that validation process because we knew it was an invalidly signed, untestable outcome in, in some sense. And so all it allowed us to do was to test the existence of large packets in the DNS model and the emergence of larger units of data flowing in this protocol. Absolutely, yeah. So the first step was to make sure that nothing would would break when when the nature of the responses changed or when the nature of the zone changed. And so that was a very slow rollout process. The first thing that happened was one of the root server operators, actually the one operated by ICANN, was the first to convert over to publishing a signed root zone. And then a few weeks later, two more joined that. And then weeks later, uh, I think three more. And eventually towards the, the May timeframe, all of the root servers, except for VeriSign's JRoot, were publishing the, the signed root zone, and, and JRoot was the last one to go. So there's something going on here that people may not understand if they're not DNS geeks. When you first bootstrap a DNS resolver, one of the things it has to do is come to an understanding of what is the root, what is the dot at the end of all fully qualified domain names. Even if you don't type the dot, it's implicitly there. And they do this through a mechanistic process where there's a little file. It used to be called the hints file, but it's basically a load of a preloaded set of ways to get the root from one of the 13, one of the 13 authoritative name servers. And it's kind of an odd moment because we don't have an algorithmic formula to say we'll start with A, and if that fails, try B. It's more random, isn't it? It is random, yeah, yeah. And so selection of which agent you go to out of a set of 13 labels has a random component. But then there's a second thing which comes into play that you don't only ever stay with the one you first ask. You kind of hunt around and test a few, and you see which one has a lower round trip time, lower RTT, and you start selecting to go to that one. So the decision to have one of the routes include larger packets that was quite an interesting moment to measure what goes on here because there's the potential for that to alter the delay component and the visibility of this initial loading. So it would have an impact on the distribution of load across the 13. Yeah, so we were looking for things like if if that one that went first, you know, if its query rate dropped all of a sudden, meaning it fell out of favor, or maybe the opposite, maybe its query rate jumped all of a sudden, meaning its clients were sort of having trouble communicating with it, you know, that would have been a signal that, that something had gone wrong. But we didn't see that, obviously, so it was all good. After that initial round, winding up with Jay being the last instance, the actual moment of ignition, if you like, is when instead of having the DERS state, you move to having the public key. Right. So the next step in that process was that ICANN held the first of their uh, key signing ceremonies where they, they sort of break all this equipment out of safes that it's stored in and they turn on these HSMs and they gather people in a room and have this 
sort of long ceremony. They generate a key and then they use that. That's the KSK. They use that KSK to generate signatures over the ZSK or the zone signing key. So that happened in July. So this is public-private keying technology, which is that model of cryptography, which VeriSign knows very well, having had a long involvement in public-private keying in the context of certificates. The technology here, an HSM, a hardware security module, it's a unit that's designed to have private keys and a really strong source of random data generate keys in a way that that keying information never leaves the box unless you mean it to. In certification, what you're doing is you're signing over public certificates, blobs of ASN1 binary structure. In the DNS, we're using public-private keys subtly differently. It's the same keying model, the same cryptography algorithm. There's no certificate, is there? It's just signatures, RR SIGs, and yeah, they get published as, as records in the DNS. Right. So a ceremony in public-private keying is the way that the public gets some insight into the mechanistic process to actually perform, use this key, make this key. So we say things glibly like, oh, an HSM is terribly secure. Well, it's as secure as the operating environment. I find the ceremonies fascinating. There's many facets to them. They have multiple tiers of physical and other security to, to uh, protect the process and the HSMs themselves. And that's all available for anyone to go and watch. You can, you can actually go and watch any of the ceremonies that have taken place already. Once that took place, VeriSign was then in possession of the elements of a keying process for public-private cryptography that would allow it to perform its functional role of actually making a publicly validatable sign zone. So you use the HSM to bring out of that secure space cryptographic materials that could be applied to the zone. So these ceremonies take place every calendar quarter. And so, for example, at the first one, VeriSign transmits a set of public key data to be signed. The HSMs come out of their safes, they generate the signatures, and then those signatures are transmitted back to VeriSign, imported into our root zone management system, and then they are published in the zone throughout the next quarter as needed. Well, under the DERS model, you'd already been testing those publication methods using the same techniques, but with nonce keys. This was the point where you actually started using valid HSM-derived keys, and the measurement would have been looking at the visibility of that service in deployment. Now, this is kind of an odd moment because with cryptography, there are two roles. There's the maker, and that's the thing we've been discussing, and there's the relying party the people who are actually testing things. So were you in any position at that point to make measurements of whether people were out there looking at, relying on, validating this stuff? That's not something that we really were in a position to look at. That's much harder. You know, we were mostly concerned about, you know, the server side, which is, you know, are we, are we observing changes in traffic that would lead us to believe something was wrong? For the client side, for the validating part, that still sort of remains a, a very difficult thing to measure. Yeah. Jeff in APNIC Labs is applying a random sampling technique, which gives us some insight into that. But the really critical question for the community at large is nothing broke on the publication side. And that's the thing that you've been measuring and monitoring since that deployment date in 2010. Yeah. So for that 
rollout of DNSSEC, we relied very heavily on data that is curated by DNSOARC. We call it DITL data, which is day in the life of the internet. And essentially, this is full packet capture from all of the, well, as many as root server operators as we can get. They provide full packet captures to DNSOARC for about a two-day period, 48 hours. This is very, very useful data for the kind of thing we were, you know, for rolling out DNSSEC. The sort of disadvantage is that it could take a while to transmit all that data and then analyze it. So our analysis lagged <laughs> by a few days, some of the events, but uh, still showed us that, you know, everything was uh, going as expected. Dittal, day in the life. That's quite a long-term commitment that OARC has made in community data measuring. And it had pre-existing data from long, long before DNSSEC deployment. So it's kind of an A-B before after comparison. The big visible thing would be that the packets got bigger because now we're adding signatures, but the ratio of queries to responses, whether there were dropped responses, whether there was a change in the dynamics of the population, that was all really quite fascinating stuff, wasn't it? It was. The responses, you know, did get bigger as expected. Probably the thing that was most interesting was the increase in, in TCP traffic, right? So right. Before DNSSEC came along, you know, almost every DNS query response fit easily in, in your standard UDP packet, right? There was, there was really no reason to have concerns about large UDP responses. But then DNSSEC comes along, you've got signatures, you've got keys, packets get bigger. So before the root zone was signed, the root servers saw negligible amounts of TCP traffic. Once we started publishing the, the, the DNSSEC data, you know, then we started seeing yeah, maybe 40, 50 queries per second coming in on TCP, something like that. UDP DNS, the original spec was for a packet size that was much closer to 512 bytes, a small constrained packet. There was more modern DNS using DNS extensions, eDNS0 to flag, I'm doing bigger data. But there'd always been that suspicion in the back of people's minds, how much of that data really gets through in the wild. So if you get fragmentation or truncation inside that UDP, there's a way of flagging and signaling that. And it stood as a statement, well, if you didn't get all the data you needed, come back in TCP. But that also poses the question, how many people come back? So you're saying with the deployment of DNSSEC, where at ground state, you've basically never seen people TCP querying. I mean, maybe someone did for oddball reasons, but it wasn't a routine behavior. You actually started to see the emergence of TCP DNS. Yeah, right away. Yeah, it was very interesting. And well, the other interesting thing too was, as we said, the, this sort of rolled out sort of root server by root server. You know, some went first and some went later. And they all sort of have different personalities, if you will, and different traffic behaviors. And so some saw maybe a little bit more TCP traffic than others. Um, but, you know, in the end, it all sort of worked as expected. Let's go look at the second story. The size of the root zone historically was really quite constrained. It was a very small collection of labels that were really well understood. There are 250 economies, two-letter codes, CCTLDs. There were .com, .org, .net, .gov. There were these kind of labels, but there was a lot of pressure in the wider community, in the general public, in enterprise, to have access to more potential labels in the root. So you've been a part of that story and that decision to add more labels. Can we talk a bit about that? 
that all sort of, well, my involvement in that at least sort of started in the 2012, 2013 timeframe when, when people started talking about this. And as you said, for almost all the years leading up to this, the size of the zone and the number of TLDs, very stable, you know, just around 300 total. And then, you know, all of a sudden people are talking about adding many, many more. And so there were questions about, you know, is this, is this going to be okay? Are there concerns about query rates or other things? And so, so that was something that I got involved in looking at some of those effects. So that there were a whole dimension of policy questions about which label should exist. And I got to tell you, I'm not particularly interested in that right here <laughs> because in terms of measurement, that's not my bag. Where we're looking at is the technology basis. If you change the mechanistic behavior of something as central as the DNS to ordinary internet experience, you really want to know if it has a, an issue, a concern. The size of the root zone might not seem like something that could cause problems, but it does actually have potential to change behavior because the relativity of traffic across the route, it isn't quite what people think, is it? You actually typically see more queries for things that don't exist than necessarily for things that do. Yes, that is, that is absolutely true. It was true before, and it's, it's still true now. The ratio of, of those sort of changes over time, the ratio of things, names that exist versus don't exist, has changed over time. But it's always, it's always been the case that names... TLDs that don't exist like .home, .local, these tended to be sort of overrepresented or, or more popular than you might expect in root query traffic. What was actually involved in the deployment of these? Because you weren't doing one new TLD at a time, were you? You actually were blocking these up into quite large sets of deployment. My understanding was that through agreements with ICANN, these were, as you said, sort of batched, like maybe a few per week would be added. And you talked about the policy aspect. One thing that came out of that was a lot of caution, right, about deploying these new TLDs. Like a lot of them had to go through these sort of waiting periods where they could be in the zone, but they weren't accepting registrations, right? So, so again, this all happened very slowly and deliberately where TLDs would be added, but not really made generally available for people to uh, register names under, yep. So there's also this quality that when you add a label to a zone, if the zone has DNSSEC, you have to start asking the question, is this part of the signing process for that zone? Did the new TLDs automatically get signed over in their addition into the root zone? So there's sort of two aspects to that question, right? So, so the root zone is fully signed. Any record that's in the root zone that should be signed with DNSSEC gets signed with DNSSEC. So that's the authentication quality. If it lies in this zone, I can prove cryptographically it should be a member of this zone. And that is an absolute, it's a given. Now, the other part of your question maybe is the TLD itself going to deploy DNSSEC and are, are they right. going to sign? And that is the hierarchical aspect that in order to perform validation of subsidiary zones, top-level domains to their second-level domains to their actual contents, you require to maintain the chain of trust. And if you consider this from the point of view of any individual zone, it has this thing called the SCP, the secure entry point, the idea that you can follow that chain of signatures down to it. So that part of it that wasn't axiomatic, was it? There was no obligation for new TLDs to have DNSSEC. 
It's my understanding that they were contractually obligated to have DNS. Oh, right. so, and, you know, I don't have off the top of my head, I don't remember if there were any exceptions to that. But I think for the most part, all of those new GTLDs from that time period are signed with DNSSEC. You know, I think you're right. And I think that's the qualitative difference with the CCTLDs, which have more substantive autonomy in their decision making here. They're not bound in ICANN in quite the same contractual relationship. So you guys, in your secondary role of providing zone maintenance, you actually were including these in the file, signing over them, but you also now in registry had to make sure that you'd received DNS set keying material from them to be signed over in your zone to point down into their zone. And again, this is making the size of packets flowing out of the root servers larger. Because when you inform someone that a zone exists below you and it's DNSSEC signed, you're expecting additional queries, aren't you? You're going to get the DNS key query and the DS query coming to you, and they are necessarily big payloads. You know, there's, there's a little bit of variation in how different recursive name server implementations work. So sometimes we will see separate queries for those, sometimes not. Like the DS records, for example, are normally transmitted sort of automatically as a part of a referral. So in in theory, there's no need to query them separately. But for a number of reasons, we do still see them queried separately by different resolver implementations. So this means that you were potentially seeing not only larger packets, which tickles the move to TCP burden. And for those of us who aren't protocol nuts, TCP implies a higher burden in the host because there's state being held inside the machine to account for that end-to-end flow. So the inclusion of TCP wasn't just intellectual interest. There's actually an operational concern for you as a root operator. You might have to rescale your implementation if the TCP burden meant that you needed more state in the machine. Yeah, that is something that, you know, root server operators were a little bit concerned about because, you know, as we said before, Before all this, you know, TCP was very rare and it's not really something anyone had to worry about. And now it becomes more and more relevant and it's something you pay attention to. I'm not aware of any cases where there were any problems or anybody, you know, ran out of state or anything like that, but definitely something to keep an eye on. Moving along, the third significant event of transition in the life of the route is this idea of the ZSK, the zone signing key. So At the start, we were using a shorter algorithm in the RSA family. We were using RSA 1024, weren't we? Right. And there's a fairly direct relationship between the bit length in that 1024 and the size of the output of application of that algorithm. Right. There was community pressure that this potentially was not an adequate protection in cryptographic terms. In the root zone, the key signing key, the KSK, was always a 2048-bit key. The ZSK, the zone signing key, started out as a 1024-bit key. And I forget what year it was exactly, but sometime after 2010 and before, say, 2015, NIST published recommendations basically deprecating 1024-bit keys. And, And so that happened absolutely for SSL certificates. And some people started saying, well, if it's, you know, if it's not good for SSL certificates, why is it okay for, for DNSSEC? So there's a quality here 
that if we took off our hats and ties and we walked into IETF, no longer having functional roles where we have to be concerned about delivery of this outcome, but just talking intellectually, it's not actually a particularly strong case. And there's a lot to do with the arithmetic of the frequency of key use and leakage over time of the number of bits in a key leading to the worry that a 1024 length key is no longer secure. But if we put our ties and hats back on again, that's not actually our primary concern, right? If we're in the role of looking at public service provision to the public namespace, and if a community of trust is uncomfortable with a 1024-bit key, technologically, we have to start asking, can we move to 2048? Yep, yep. So you did quite a lot of pretest of this, didn't you? I did actually, yeah. So this is another sort of important change. And since VeriSign operates the ZSK for the root zone, you know, a lot of the responsibility was on us to get it right. So uh, one of the things I did was took some traffic captures and replayed them to servers, simulated servers signed with different sized keys, you know, from 1024 all the way up to 4096 to see how the traffic would change with, with key size and see what we could expect. So this is one of the beauties of being a root operator and of things like DNS OARC. You actually have access to the reality of how people interact in the root because you have the dual function, both making the zone and providing the service, which means when you go in and say, what's going to happen, you're not testing on a fictional load that's a synthetic construct of what people believe happens. You actually replayed real query streams. I did. I replayed real traffic from VeriSign's A root and J root. It wasn't a super long amount of traffic. It was only about 10 minutes because, to be honest, replaying all of the traffic that we get over like a 24 hour period would be, that would be a, a really <laughs> difficult thing to accomplish. So I chose a more manageable <laughs> amount of data and replayed it and, um, you know, got some very useful results. The actually, the, um, The simulations came pretty close to the changes that we actually observed when it was all said and done. Yeah, I think there's a quite active debate between sample versus collect on the data income side. And there's a similar thing in modeling over short interval modeling, random Monte Carlo and full life modeling about how much is enough. And it is a really interesting question whether a small sample set is adequate. But you know, you guys get an astronomical number of queries a second. We're talking millions of events. So a 10-minute window is a really quite significantly large sample set across the entire community. In the context of a day of 86,400 seconds, 10 minutes is actually a pretty good sample. This happened quite a while ago, and I don't remember how long it actually took to replay it. But certainly, my little test bed was not able to keep up at the same <laughs> at the same query rates as as our production servers. So, it, you know, it, the ten minute sample may have taken a day to replay, but but I don't I don't remember exactly. So, as well as testing the what if of the public side of this, you guys also had to test the mechanistic components of application of a new size of key in the HSM, in the ceremony, in the process of producing signed products. You actually did a full life test production of signing as well, didn't you? Yeah, we always do for something like that. We have a lot of QA teams that do, you know, run all these scenarios. We tested fallback situations where, you know, what if we publish this larger key and then decide we need to go back to the smaller key? You know, how would that work? And so we did a lot of that kind of testing. 
And again, with live deployment, more keys, because you don't perform a transition between keys by just stopping one and starting the other. You actually have a window where you're putting both in the packet together, don't you? The way this works for the root zone keys is each calendar quarter is divided into nine slots about of about, well, each slot is 10 days, except sometimes the last slot has to be a little bit longer because some quarters are 91 or 92 days long. Because the Romans couldn't sort out their calendar. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so the slots at the uh, boundaries of the quarters, which is the first slot and the ninth slot, those are used for ZSK rollovers, right? So that's when this event happened. The new larger key was published uh, at the start of the ninth slot. And then the smaller key was removed at the end of the first slot of the next quarter. So we had a transitional window where the packet size got radically larger, two key burden, carries flat and then drops, but it doesn't drop quite down to the old level because the signing technology has got larger. Exactly. And so then we looked very closely at this because, as we'll talk about next, I expect, there's a lot of similarities between this and what could happen during the KSK role. Right. So did you actually see any interesting effects in community behavior over the transition? No, there were no observed problems or anything like that. The most significant thing was the traffic volume leaving the root servers went up by 30% just because the signatures got larger. So that's, that's a pretty significant change, but there were no, no other effects really. So that size change is something I've talked about with other engineers who are providing root zone services. And a comment a couple of them have made to me is all that happens with these transitions is that foreseeable future growth is brought forward by a period of time. Because there's a semi-constant increase in background traffic in this arena, really, isn't there? Yes, yeah. There's this sort of steady increase in query load over time. And you know, as we were talking about with these slots, these first and ninth slots, if you were to look at traffic volume over a long period of time, you would see it go up <laughs> at the start of that and then go back down, like you said. But in this case, it didn't go back down all the way, right? It, yeah. it, it sort of stayed at that higher level for the future. Do you think that within a foreseeable short lifetime, we could see another instance of ZSK shift? And would it be for more bits or would it be an algorithm shift? I think more bits is extremely unlikely. I think the algorithm shift, well, that's already sort of being discussed and being planned for, but there's a lot still to be worked out there. It's going to be interesting because in an algorithm rollover transition, both the ZSK and the KSK have to sort of transition at the same time. Right. So that's going to be a very interesting period in terms of packet size and all the other things that we have to worry about. Well, that's quite a nice transitional bridge to our last question, which is the KSK rollover. So again, it's a bit of DNS geek jargon, ZSK, zone signing key. That's the mechanistic key used to actually say what should be in the zone. KSK, key signing key, that's the key that says why you should trust the zone signing key. So there's kind of hierarchies of keys here. The KSK is something that kind of people were scared about. They didn't want to change. Yeah, so due to the way that KSK is used, right, it doesn't generate a lot of signatures. I mean, that's one of the reasons for the split, right, is that you can 
use a KSK sort of longer than you can use a ZSK, right? So the, for, for the root zone, the ZSK changes every every 90 days. KSK changes, you know, on a timescale measured in years. Yep, it's a policy decision to make a change here. But the other side of the coin of having a pressure, if it ain't broke, don't change it, is that nagging question, what happens if we have to? And I think the general feeling in IETF was we've reached the point where from an engineering perspective, we really should understand how this behaves because doing it because we have to is a different mechanistic circumstance to doing it because we want to. Why don't we do it because we want to and learn how it works? Yes, absolutely. That was many meetings and, and discussions were had on that topic. Like, it's better to know how to do this. It's better to keep it in our institutional memory than to have to figure it out on short notice and potentially make some mistakes. So you've made quite a big investment in VeriSign, in measurement technology, in pre-testing, traffic approaches to looking at things. Did you use these tools to pre-test the KSK role? What I did for the KSK role was sort of similar to, I reviewed some of the tools that we did for the ZSK. I had developed a tool, a web-based tool, that someone could go to and this tool had embedded, you know, sort of embedded queries in it that used keys, uh, DNSSEC signed zone signed with different size keys. And the user would see sort of green or red <laughs> indicating whether or not they were able to resolve names in those zones signed with different sized keys. So that was a pretty straightforward tool. It, it didn't get, I wouldn't say it got a lot of use, but, you know, some people like that to demonstrate that their resolvers were ready for the bigger packets and the, the KSK rollover. Right. So there's the measurement component here, which is that we, we're geeks and we're fascinated. But the other side of the deal is we're doing this to improve community confidence. Yeah. And so you had available to you ways to assess the behavior of the system. It's the first time we're performing a significant key transition. You were able to pretest, see behavior, and also put online some things that helped people gain confidence on expected outcome. Yeah. And Probably the, the more useful measurement that I did for, for both the ZSK and the, the KSK change was a, um, a tool that, or it's, it's actually a, a plugin to the DNS cap software. This plugin was called RZ Key Change. And so if, 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 if you're not familiar with DNS cap, it's sort of like TCP dump. It captures packets, but focused only on DNS packets. And uh, the idea is that this software would run on all the root server instances and would report in, in pretty close to real time measurements back to a central place where we could see things like total query rate, number of TCP connections, number of ICMP fragmentation needed errors and things like that. Right, which would be indications of points of concern in what is essentially a UDP-driven protocol. If you saw changes in IP layer signaling saying, I'm having connection problems, packet too big, um, PMTU fail, that's a problem. And if you see the ratio of UDP to TCP changing, it doesn't have to be a problem, but it's something you want to monitor. Yeah. So that was something that you know a lot of the other root server operators all ran and was very useful in assuring us that you know everything was going as planned. I've used DNS cap and it's really lovely software. It's eBPF or is it using a different hook into the kernel? So I don't know if it's eBPF so much. I mean, I, I consider it a libpcap API. So I guess it's the same thing, right? Yeah. 
We've had the NLNet Labs guys talking about their increasing use of VBPF to do kernel resident models of DNS. And it's quite an interesting space to introspect on what's going on low down in the stack without interfering with service quality higher in the stack. It's really, really nice software. Do you think the KSK role is likely to lead to more frequent key roles? Is this something we could see coming up again? Because that was 2018. So we're four or five years on now. Yeah, so not too long after the the KSK role in, in 2018, you know, ICANN and IANA started working on uh, plans for future rollovers. And they published a, a document that sort of outlined how that would work. Then global pandemic sort of threw a wrench into a lot of plans because yeah. the key signing ceremonies were sort of impacted in, in that, you know, how many people could attend to ceremonies and, and, and things like that. So those plans are resuming. But yeah, it has been now, uh, we're a little bit behind schedule, I would say, from what we had initially thought. But the second rider coming along with this story is that the RSA algorithm and increases in key length imposes this quite high burden on production of key signing outcomes and larger packets. And sitting out in left field is moving to a different basis of public-private cryptography, which has an amazing benefit of shortening the length of signed products. This is something that's been deployed lower in the tree, and it's been used quite widely for ephemeral on-the-fly key signing. It has downsides. It increases the burden in the community to do the validation side. But from an aspect of a protocol and shipping data, Smaller is better, right? So there's this drive, could we shift algorithm? And as you said earlier, if we're going to make a decision to move algorithm, we're actually doing two things at once. You have to move the ZSK and the KSK in concert. Right. And we've got two families of cryptography existing in packets at the same time. Do you think that's something that may be coming? Yeah, it's, it's coming. ICANN has started convening a design team to study this and make some recommendations. I think there will be a, a regular KSK rollover first. After that, I don't know how many more RSA rollovers there will be before we switch to a different algorithm, but it's definitely on, on the roadmap. Well, I think that the basis of measurement that you've come up with and the approaches to assessing functional fit and viability for change in the system, I think it's really very impressive, Dwayne. I think there's a good community outcome here. Thank you very much. That's been absolutely fascinating. And if we can, I'd like to think forward. Maybe we could have a few more stories in DNS and measurement because it's quite an active space to explore, isn't it? I would love that. Yes, there's, I think, many more things that we could talk about that your uh, listeners might, uh, might enjoy hearing about. Thank you. All right. Thank you, George. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time, 